what we could call Sunday morning truths and apply them to Monday morning realities. And so we're addressing a number of key topics through this series and to, for today and actually next week as well. I have extended into a two-week uh, topic. We will be looking at what the Bible says about sex. This week we will look at how the Bible addresses what we could call, what the Bible would call sexual immorality. Uh, that would be sex outside of the guidelines and the commands and the good ways of God. Next week we will talk about sex, biblical sex proper, uh, really biblical sexuality, uh, and apply that to both singles and marrieds as well. So that's the, uh, the warning and Brother Ken's concern uh, for, the, for today and for the children, and I leave it up to you to discern that. I, again, I said it's about PG-13. There'll be no pictures, though, so don't worry. Um, <laughs> no pictures and no stories. That would be typical of a PG-13. But I want to talk about this issue because it's important. It's a prevalent issue in our culture. It's an issue for us as Christians in our own lives and around us. So this issue affects uh, who we are before the Lord in profound ways. And this issue affects us as believers as we are called to be ambassadors of, of the gospel of grace, agents of the kingdom of God in our world. Uh, it affects us. It affects how we relate. If we're going to relate to people in Christ's name, we need to understand what the scriptures teach. And we need to be ourselves transformed by the truth of the scriptures and how we live. And so we can convey to them the truth, the gospel, and the wonderful ways of God in the area of sex. We are in a culture that is rapidly changing in its ethic of sexuality. And by the way, I do not think that our culture, or any given culture probably, has ever got this quite right. So I'm not looking to the culture as a reference point. I'm merely helping you be aware of what's going on. Right now in our culture, about 60% of the adult population believes it's okay and even good to have sex before marriage. About 60%. If you ask the, the adult population under 30 or so that same question, about 80% of them believe it, it is good and even uh, it's acceptable and even good to have sex before marriage. About 50% of our country believes same-sex marriages should be allowed, and about 70% of those under 30 think so. Thankfully, a very high percentage still thinks that sex... Uh, Extramarital sex affairs uh, are improper, about 90% or more. But we live in a sex-soaked society. It's a reality of, of our culture and what's around us. The, the pornography industry, I think I have a number of slides on this, pornography industry um, has revenues anywhere from $3 billion to $12 billion per year. That's more money than all the different major football franchises, sports franchises combined. As of 2003, so this is dated, nine years old, but there were 1.3 million pornographic websites out there. Uh, there are 72 million visitors, unique visitors to adult websites per month. 72 million. That's unique ones. 70% of men from ages 18 to 34 will visit a pornographic site in a typical month. 70% of young men. Nine out of ten children in the UK uh, were reported to have been exposed to pornography on the internet between the ages of 
8 and 16, sometimes unintentionally. Every second, over $3,000 is being spent on pornography. Over uh, 28,000 internet users are viewing pornography. In a study of convicted child molesters, 77% of those who molested boys said they were regular users of pornography. And 80%, 87% of those who molested girls said they were. Why do I bring that up? Well, I, I don't bring it up to kind of to get down on the culture. That's not my point. I'm not bringing it up to get us to go back the, to the good old days. I don't think the good old days ever quite existed. The only good days ultimately are the kingdom of God coming in its fullness. And the kingdom comes now in and through us and brings a different ethic than the world. This is not about restoring a Victorian ethic. This is about what the Scriptures call us to. It's about recognizing that God's ways are radically alternate to our culture. And there are truths grounded in the Gospel that transform how we think about sex for our own lives and as we relate to the culture. God has given us what we need for this. Looking at these stats, we shouldn't be intimidated because His Word is sufficient in the power of the Holy Spirit to give us what we need for our own lives. And, and there are those here today, I know for certain there are those here today who are caught up in sexual immorality of some sort. And you may not even define it and think of it that way. It may just be you're aware that you're bound to something. God's Word is sufficient for you. God wants to perform a rescue operation for you today. And for all of us, we are relating to those around us who are struggling with this issue. God's Word is sufficient for us and the power of the Holy Spirit to be part of a rescue of others' lives as well. So with that in mind, let's pray and ask God to speak to us through His Word. Lord, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word and the rescue You perform through Your Word in our lives. And we thank You for the power of Your Word to rescue those around us whom we love, who need You. And so we ask you, Lord, as we look at your word, would you grant power from the Holy Spirit that we might comprehend these things, that it wouldn't just be been there, done that, gone through the scripture before, but today we would encounter you through your word and be changed and be empowered to live in you, to be freed in the gospel, to love you and to love others in your name. So come, Holy Spirit, speak to us. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. That's what I rely on right now, Lord. We need you. I need you. And thank you that you're faithful to speak and to act. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12, and I'll go through verse 20. Paul is addressing his friends in Corinth who are in a culture that is very much like our culture. He's bringing truth to them. He, does, he starts out by quoting some slogans and then moves on. He says in verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Quote, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Quote, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. 
and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price so Glorify God in your body. God's word from 1 Corinthians 6. What a wonderful passage to address this topic. To learn about what God's word says about sex and in particular sexual immorality. This passage and others outline for us a radical truth. That the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the truth of his reign, of his rescue and his reign and his return, radically alters how we view and practice our sexuality. It radically changes us in our sexuality. The gospel comes and, and turns right side up what is upside down. Does that both by addressing sexual immorality and offering a wonderful gospel-centered alternative. It also does it by addressing the, the call of, of, of biblical sex and shaping that and empowering that, and we'll get to that next week. So Paul starts out here, though, and he starts out in the first section addressing these slogans of sexual immorality. These are slogans that are out there that the Corinthians uh, are using. They're a combination of biblical truth, some of them, or at least one of the slogans is, mixed with worldly attitude. They're slogans, they're, they're, way, they're, they're phrases that capture ideas. And the two slogans here are, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And the other slogan is, food's meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And these are two slogans that are, that are shaping the Corinthians in their thinking. And we too, in our culture, have slogans that are out there that influence how we think about things. Slogans like, Boys will be boys. Everyone does it. Whatever. Live and let live. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Or who am I to judge? Those sort of slogans can shape us and direct us in how we regard our sexual ethic. And so Paul comes after these slogans, after the slogans that the Corinthians are, are influenced by. And he wants to address it. And God wants to address us in our slogans. Slogans are part of culture. They're part of the statements of culture. And if we as Christians are unaware of what's going on in our culture, we will find ourselves uh, subject to our culture. Culture is just like a raging river that just flows. 
It doesn't really have a brain. It just does. It just happens. It, it's, it's a very complex phenomenon, and we can't get into all the reasons why it does what it does, but it just does things. It moves. It's like a big, rushing river. And we, in this culture, if we're not careful, we'll just flow along with the rushing river. And yet Paul cares for the Corinthians. God cares for the Corinthians, and he wants to provide a rock, a rock amidst the river. And he throws out a lifesaver of God's truth to the Corinthians to rescue them from this flowing, raging river that they can stand on the rock and be safe and reach out to others to perform rescue for them as well. Well, God wants to do the same thing for us today. He wants to give us a rock to stand on, to be rescued ourselves. And there are those, I'm sure, in here who, who are or have been in the need of rescue and he wants to use us to rescue others. So we need to understand. We need to think. We need to think about truth in our culture. And so Paul goes after these slogans. He addresses these slogans. And so the first slogan, all things are lawful for me. It's a slogan that, that captures this idea that I'm free. And all things are, are permissible. All things are, are okay for me to engage in. And it's, it's a truth, but it's a half-truth. And it's interesting that Paul actually doesn't refute the statement, does he? He doesn't say, no, 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 that's not true. Things are lawful for you. He doesn't do that. He offers alternative thinking. So, so I believe Paul, in some ways, uh, tacitly, quietly, affirms this statement because it is true to a degree. And why is it true? It's true for this reason. If you are a Christian, you have put your faith in Christ. You have put your faith in Christ to rescue you from the penalty and power and presence of sin. The reality behind what Christ has done is this, that we are all made by God and accountable to God. God is a holy and righteous God. He has divine right over all of our lives and everything we say and do. We are not our own as creations of God. We, we belong to Him ultimately. And he's called us to, to live in relationship with him and, and walk in his good ways, but we haven't. We've sinned. We've disobeyed him. And there's a penalty for sin. It's to be cut off from God and live in exile. And ultimate exile is to go and live in hell forever. Exile forever, a horrible fate. And God, that's the just penalty for sin. And he also calls us to obedience. We have an obligation to obey him. And we could never pay the penalty for our sin in and of ourselves. If you choose to pay it, you'll spend eternity paying it. And we can never satisfy the obligations of the law that he calls us to satisfy, to obey. But Christ has come. Christ obeyed perfectly. He never failed. He obeyed the Father in every way without sin. And then he offered up that life, that perfect life on the cross to pay for our sin. So the penalty is paid and the righteous obligations are fulfilled in Christ. So you're totally forgiven and you've been totally accepted already in Christ. So if you're a believer, you've put your faith in Christ, you are forgiven and no penalty for sin remains. You are like somebody who has received a presidential pardon, permanent presidential pardon, for all that you've done and all that you will do. In that sense, all things are lawful because there's no more penalty. You have a pardon. You live pardoned. And in some ways, you could engage in whatever you want, and you'll still be forgiven if you're truly a believer. Now, that gets into questions. If you're truly a believer, you probably won't do these things. But 
conceptually, all things are lawful for me. I'm forgiven. I can do what I want. But there's more to the story, and that's what Paul gets at. That truth alone, I think, is worthy of a lot of contemplation that all things are lawful. I am free and forgiven. But Paul adds more to the story. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. In other words, I am forgiven. There's no penalty, and and conceivably I could go out and do what I want, but not all things are helpful. There are consequences of my choices, both good and bad. And what I do and the choices I make have an impact. They are either helpful or unhelpful. And as a believer transformed by the grace of God with the Holy Spirit living in me, living in us, transforming us, our orientation is to love God and to love others, to want to be helpful in every way. So that's why we don't pursue sin, because God's changed us. Not because we're free, freedom is a wonderful thing, but because we use our freedom to love. We're free, we're forgiven, we're pardoned. Not so we can be selfish. So we can choose to engage in a life of loving God and loving others. Not all things are helpful. That shapes what we do, what we decide. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything, Paul says. Yes, all things are lawful, but your choices will determine who you serve. Your choices will will determine what your life is like. And I'll talk about that more in a few moments. Next slogan that Paul addresses is this idea of, quote, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is the idea that, hey, this is natural. This stuff is natural. Sex drive is natural. And if you have a sex drive, fulfill it. Satisfy it. That's normal. Now, that's becoming increasingly an idea in our culture now, that this is, this is just how it is. How can you say don't satisfy your drive? That's just unreasonable. And so our culture seeks to make adjustments in how you satisfy to protect us from some bad choices and the consequences of bad choices. But, but fundamentally, fundamentally, we have this idea that it's natural, and we're, and we're not willing to address that. But Paul goes right after it. He goes right after this idea Food for the stomach, the stomach for food. Hey, you got a sex drive, there's a reason you have it. That was the thinking then, that's the thinking now. Actually, uh, there's a quote from Cicero, who was a, uh, a leader in that day, and he's speaking about the culture. He says, but if, if there be any who thinks that youth is to be wholly restrained from affairs with call girls, he's certainly very strict indeed. I cannot deny what he says, but he's still at variance, not only with the license of the present age, but even with the habits of our ancestors and what they used to consider allowable. For when was the time that men were not used to act in this manner? When was such conduct found fault with? When was it not permitted? When, in short, was the time when that which is lawful was not lawful? So Cicero, a contemporary, was saying, hey, guys, this is normal. It's always happened this way. What's the big beef? What's the problem? And that is, in some ways, the attitude with our culture today. It's natural. It's normal. There's a new normal that's out there, guys, that says it's normal to pursue these things. It's normal to live with your partner before marriage. It's the new normal to to have sex early in a relationship, a dating relationship. It's the new normal to, to be involved in pornography and struggle with it. It's the new normal to see sex as a mere biological function. But this is radically contrary to the Scripture, and to the truth. And Paul goes after us. He goes after these slogans with truth, with gospel truth. 
and refutes these things so that the Corinthians can enjoy the freedom of being able to love God fully and love others and not be enslaved. For these slogans lead to not freedom but slavery. The next thing I want to talk about is the slavery of sexual immorality. And Paul gets at that in this statement, all all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. There is this real important paradox of life. That freedom doesn't mean the choice to do anything you want. And there's no consequences. The, The Corinthians thought, and our culture thinks, that freedom means I can do whatever I want without consequence. I can choose whatever I want to do and be free. And they thought that was the case, and our culture thinks that's the case. But it is not the case. There's this paradox in freedom. Freedom, true freedom, biblical freedom that only comes ultimately through Christ. Biblical freedom is the freedom to choose to be enslaved to the best master. That's what true freedom is. The ability to choose to be enslaved or under the best master. We all choose a master. We all choose a master. And the master you choose will determine your life. And if you choose the Lord of grace, the King of grace, there'll be blessing and freedom. But there's a, there's a slavery of sorts under that. We all choose who to be enslaved to. We all choose our master. And so, yes, you are free. All things are lawful. There's no penalty over your life. But who you choose to serve will determine your whole life. It will be your master. And if it is sex, sexual, immoral sex, it will be your master. It will be a cruel master. Guys, do you know anybody who has been liberated by the sexual revolution, truly? Who is living truly free and happy because the mores of our, of our parents are no longer functioning in their lives? And those mores, are those, those norms, those rules, many of them were good. Some of them weren't. But do you know anybody who's truly liberated by the sexual revolution? Those, those who pursue free sex, are they not living lives of slavery to sex? Does it not become a cruel master to them? It does. It enslaves. It enslaves us when we give ourselves to these things. It leads to slavery. It leads to be being controlled by these things. Sexual addiction is a powerful thing. It's a cruel master. It will grab hold of your life and it will define everything for you. Life will be about sex. You'll, you'll think about others in terms of sex. It will get warped and it will destroy you and it will ruin all your relationships ultimately. Free sex enslaves. And Paul states he will not be mastered by anything, he will not see that his freedom is squandered and giving itself to sexual immorality. And he calls the Corinthians to the same. And God calls us to the same. Don't use your freedom to indulge in immorality and thus be imprisoned. Follow the true Master, who alone is the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ. David Garland says in his commentary in 1 Corinthians, the more one seeks life's meaning in God, the freer one becomes. When you seek to find your life in God, He is your master. You will find yourself free and full of joy 
in him. Next, I want to talk about my final point, the Savior, our bodies, and sexual morality. I want to talk about what Paul addresses here in this passage. A large portion of this passage, Paul addresses the idea that your bodies are not your own, that you have been bought by the Lord. Your bodies belong to Him. Do you see that in, your, in the passage? Maybe, Brendan, you could put that section back up, verses 15 and on. Let me reread it so we can hear again this idea because I think it's really important for us understanding this topic and, and experiencing growth in our lives. He says in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them a members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Paul addresses in this section the issue of the Savior, our body, and sexual immorality. There's some key truths here that, that drive us towards holiness and purity and right biblical sexuality. This idea that our bodies are not our own. They do not merely belong to us. Our bodies are members of Christ. And it's, our bodies are not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That's a wild thought. That's really different. We live in a culture that says, you can tell me what to do, maybe. You can give me advice. You can even make rules for me to follow, but don't touch my body. This belongs to me. I choose what I will do with my body. That, that's an idea that's out there, right? The idea of somebody saying, no, you will do this, or your body belongs to the state. We would just be outraged of, uh, with that sort of idea. But that's what Paul is saying here. For the Christian, your body does not belong to you. It isn't merely your body. Your body belongs to Christ as a member of the body of Christ, as a member of, of the church, capital C, as a member of the people of God. You, your soul, and your body belong to Jesus and even to the rest of the church. I think we can make that extension. Your body's not your own. It's not yours to do what you want. It belongs to Christ. And God raised the Son bodily from the dead. And He's going to raise you bodily from the dead. And you will be with the Lord, body and soul forever. All of you will belong and does belong to the Lord. It's not your own. And He's been raised from the dead so that your body can be transformed. And He dwells in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. You are a temple. Your body is a temple. It's not just you in your body. That's a wild thought too. You're not alone in your body. Your body's a temple. God lives in you. He dwells in you. And your body is to be for Him. It's connected to Him. And so Paul addresses this, this absurd and shocking idea that you would take the members of your body and unite them to a prostitute. You're taking something that belongs to Jesus and making it one with a prostitute. For when you have sex with somebody, you become one with them. 
Now, his particular concern is, the, is in this culture, the men, the normal outside of the church, the men, it was very normal to visit prostitutes. It was even part, a regular part of society to do that. And it, was, and it was normal for men, married men, to have mistresses. You normally had a wife of convenience, and then you had a mistress or someone of, of passion. And so he's addressing that, but, but that doesn't mean that that's the only application, that this message doesn't apply to you unless you're visiting prostitutes. No, it, these principles apply to all of us because all of our bodies belong to the Lord. And for all of us, when we get, engage in, in sex, there is a union that goes on. And nowadays, it's not so much young men visiting real prostitutes, but it is young men and women visiting virtual prostitutes. The pornography industry is an industry of virtual prostitution. And, and the men and women on those pages are virtual prostitutes with whom you engage in virtual sex, one way or the other. Without getting into details, you engage in virtual sex with men or women through pornography. And so you may not be doing physically what's going on in this passage, but you are doing it in the mind and the heart. And we know the Lord is concerned about that. As a matter of fact, he says there's really not much difference if you do something in your heart versus if you actually do it. You can get away with it, maybe, in your heart in a way that you wouldn't physically, and so you engage in that. There's not much difference. So, hear that. If you're engaging and tempted by, pro by pornography... You are engaging in and tempted by virtual prostitution. That, that's, I think that would be a proper extension of that. And so this is for us. And there's all sorts of other applications as well because these truths about sex are, are there. And, and the body matters. And what you do with your body matters to God. Christianity and to be a creation of God does not separate soul from body. It's not about just what your soul does and who cares about your body. Your body and soul are, are interconnected. We are meant to be body-soul creations. And, and the choices you make with your body have so much to do with your life and your soul and your relationship with God. There's no escaping it. And so when you engage in sexual immorality of any sort, you are compromising your relationship with God and denying the reality, if you're a believer, of what you have in Christ. You belong to Christ. God lives in you. You have a body that will be resurrected. It belongs to Christ. Those are not meant to be things that merely scold you. They're promises that should propel you to holiness. I belong to the Lord. He dwells in me. I have all I need in Him. I've been bought with a price. He shed his blood for me. He loves me enough that he would shed his blood for me. So I could have all of him. It says that, that, that we are one in spirit with the Lord. Do you see that in the passage there? Paul is opposing becoming one in spirit with a prostitute with this reality that we become one spirit with God. That's a warning and a promise together. We are one with Him. He lives in us. We have this relationship of unity with the Lord. He is to be our highest joy. Both personally and corporately. There's a corporate aspect I will get at in this too. And sexual immorality works against that. It destroys that relationship with God, that unity, and the unity that's to come with other Christians as well. 
It works against that. It, it, it seeks to negate the promise that we have in the Lord. It enslaves. It distorts. It destroys. I know too many stories of lives destroyed by sexual immorality. And nowadays, many of them through pornography. Some of them are very close and personal. Others are in the news. I know of a man who was married to a beautiful Christian woman, had some beautiful Christian children, was a professing Christian himself, I believe even an, an elder in his church. And the draw of this lie pulled him and pulled him away. And he didn't ground himself in the promises and in the warnings we see here. He didn't reach out for help. He got sucked in more and more, and it consumed him. It consumed him so much that that life was more important to him than his children, his wife, and certainly his God and his church. And he gave it all up to pursue a life of immorality. I know of a missionary who went on the mission field to serve people in the name of the gospel, got snared in pornography. In that particular country, it was even more prevalent than here. He got sucked into that, and it became his God, and, it, and he was its slave. And he did the same thing. He gave up his marriage and his children. He gave up the work of God in that country through his life. He traded it all for prostitution and pornography. Guys, this is serious stuff. And if you're caught in this, God wants to rescue you. And believe me, those around you are caught in this. And God wants to use you to rescue them. It's probably one of the chief ensnaring sins and idols of our culture right now. And yet, this passage is full of promise. It's full of truth about Christ. It's full of the wonder of the Gospel. I've heard someone say that one of the summaries of the Christian life is this, verse 20. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Jesus Christ has died and given His blood and His life so you can be free from sin. You can be free from addiction. Whatever it might be, be it sexual or, or chemical or whatever it might be. He gave His blood. He paid for your sins. And He stands ready to come in and forgive you and give you power and life in Him. So you can be free to choose to do what's right. Christ has given Himself, it says in 1 Peter 2, He Himself bore our sins in the body, in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If anyone does sin, hear this, Maybe you sin. Maybe you're a believer who's struggling and you don't want to be caught in this. Hear this. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. He has paid for sin and satisfied holy justice. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus stands there for you right now to be forgiven and freed. You need not live in this anymore. This passage here says, flee from sexual immorality. 
flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin is outside the body. But the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. So flee. Flee where? From sexual immorality to Jesus. Now, a qualifier here. This is not saying that you need to flee from sexual immorality in those you're reaching out to. 1 Corinthians 5 says, if that were the case, then you'd have to leave the world. And that's not what we're called to do. So this isn't to create uh, an isolated bubble to live in. We are called to engage others. Now, if you are tempted, and sexual morality is something that would tempt you as you reach out, then you do need to flee that. You need to be aware of your weakness. And the answer is to flee it. Flee the temptation in your own life. Run away from it, but run where? To Jesus. And find in Him forgiveness, which breaks the power of guilt and the control it has over your life. Brother, if you belong to Jesus, I want to pronounce you forgiven for that sin you've struggled with. Forgiven by His blood. He counts you forgiven. Receive it. And don't see yourself as a failure and a guilty one, but a forgiven and beloved one in whom Christ dwells, and to whom Christ will give power to overcome that sin. That power comes through the gospel in your life, and it comes in the context of community. This is an important point, guys. So if you're struggling and you're thinking, I love this. Jesus frees me. I can flee. But think that that's just about you and Jesus. I can get this. Me and Jesus will get it down. You're going to fail. This whole letter is written in the context of community. The assumption of the gospel is that it comes and it impacts individuals indeed, but those individuals become a part of a community of believers who come together and together remind one another of the gospel and encourage one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of us may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The temptation is always going to be there. Sin will always be seeking to deceive, and yet we're called to community, gospel-centered community, to find power in life as we relate to others, and I would say to find a healthy relationship, because sometimes the allure of pornography is, is the lie that you can have an ideal relationship in this virtual world. And God says, no, but I offer you healthy relationships in this real world, the world of the kingdom, through the power of the gospel. So, That's an important part of this, is that you come to others and you find those in the church whom you can trust, who will help you, who will speak the truth and remind you of the promises of God, with whom you can be totally honest. Whatever it may be, be it pornography or premarital or extramarital sex, whatever it might be, there are answers in Christ. There are answers as we flee. There are answers in the church. If the band could come up as I close. I know of a man who was caught up in pornography, again married to a vivacious, beautiful, physically beautiful, spiritually beautiful woman, had a family, and he found himself spending hours viewing pornography. It was affecting his job. It was affecting, obviously, his marriage. It was consuming him. But thank God that Christ performed a rescue in my friend's life. He recognized what was going on. He recognized the slavery that was in his life. He recognized how counter to the gospel his lifestyle was. He recognized how he was running from what is most precious, Jesus Christ, and the gifts 
and the blessings of marriage and family and church. And so he fled sex immorality. He turned from it and he trusted Christ. Now he was a believer who was caught up in this, but he still had to repent. We live lives of repentance and running, fleeing from sin to Christ, and he did that. But he didn't just stop there. He got involved with others. He got in a good church. He built relationships, and he confessed his sins and struggles to others, and they prayed for him and reminded him of Christ and the beauty of the promises of Christ, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, being bought with his blood and belonging to him and finding our life in him. And I can say right now, you wouldn't know that this man had ever struggled like he did if you met him. You'd see a joyful man who loves his wife, loves his family, loves his God, loves his church. Christ rescues us. The gospel changes how we view sex. And I want to invite you today to turn to Christ, to flee from sexual morality and to find grace and and if you are struggling, I would love to pray with you. And there are others as well in this church who in confidence would love to pray with you and seek, seek to remind you and help you, remind you of Christ and help you. If you are not yet a believer and, and as you've listened today, you recognize that this is, this is me. This is, this is where I am. That's a good thing. And that means more than that, you've just come to a place where it happened to be mentioned. It means more than that, this is a coincidence. It means that God loves you. And he's after you because he loves you. And he wants you to respond. He wants you to say, you know what? Enough. Help me, Lord. And I would love to pray with you. You just need to pray a simple prayer. Just, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I trust you and your death for my sins and your resurrection. Just turning and trusting. It's that simple. You can just pray right where you are. And find that forgiveness and find that power and find that freedom. And I would invite you to come and plug into this church or another good church to find the ongoing strength to live a life of goodness and holiness and freedom in the gospel. Let's pray.